0: I'm Amy Joe Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now Show. <music> you know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Hi everyone. Quick favor before we dive in. If you are digging this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it means a ton to us. Also, after recording more than 100 episodes, I've created a bit of a cheat sheet on the top five things I've learned from renegades and how they get from idea to action, from dreaming to doing. I will email you the downloadable PDF. When you subscribe to my newsletter, just head to amijomartin.com and click on connect with me. Kim Motley is on the show today. She's the first foreign attorney to litigate in Afghanistan since 2008. She's also the mother of three and former Mrs. Wisconsin. She's considered one of the most effective defense attorneys operating in Afghanistan. Kim's mindset and wisdom have allowed her to navigate impossible situations, and she shares these principles in this episode with us. They can apply to nearly any situation you're going through. Kim experiences an above-average amount of risk with her job. She's been temporarily detained, accused of running a brothel, accused of being a spy, and she's had a grenade thrown at her office. Kim works in a male-dominated Afghan court and prison system. And as Vanity Fair has written, she must appear to be someone from outer space. She acknowledges this, but declares that she gets respect. She has proven to be a very effective and tenacious fighter. Motley has been described as possessing a rare kind of grit, the kind necessary to hang a shingle in Kabul, represent the underrepresented, weather a kaleidoscope of threats, and win the respect of the Afghan legal establishment and tribal leaders. Kim Motley's work and determination are unmatched. I have so much respect for the important work she's doing in this world, And I must admit, I was a little nervous interviewing such a powerhouse. She's a global investor of human rights. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery. Yep, the original Before You Go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of, you know what? This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit poopery.com and why not now listeners get 20% off with code why not now. That's all one word. Also, you can now get Poopery at Target. We all seem to know someone who's about to have a baby. And the question is, what do we get them as a gift? Do we really go to that registry and scroll through those sometimes boring items? Or do we wow them with something different and unique? I have a solution for you. It's called Baby Beats. Baby Beats are one-of-a-kind songs created using the recorded heartbeat of the baby in utero. The song is coupled with a video That includes photos of the expecting parents and their journey to parenthood. And then it's delivered to you in a cute little wooden box with a USB drive inside. It's adorable. Baby Beats are a great solution for baby shower gifts or even for announcement videos for the expecting parents themselves. They can share these on social media and it's really unique. If you are interested in Baby Beats, head to yourbabybeats.com and you get a 25% discount as a Why Not Now listener. So at checkout, enter in Why Not Now as your coupon code, Why Not Now, no caps, and you get 25% off. Head to yourbabybeats.com. Kim, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and also catch up and learn a little bit more of what you're, you're doing now, but before we get to that, can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you had to ask yourself, why not now? And we'll talk it through.
1: Well, I think, um, frankly, the, the, the last really huge decision was in 2008 when I was offered the opportunity to go to Afghanistan for a contracting job to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys. And so, uh, that was a big, it was a time in 2008, um, when I, I have three children. Um, at that point in time, they were were two, seven and 12 years old. Um, I had never traveled outside the country, but it was, um, a, a good professional opportunity, but frankly, also a good financial opportunity. And so I was, you know I' talked to my husband about it, on whether or not you know this was something that made sense to do, also considering going to Afghanistan because it's not you know a vacation spot, obviously
0: mm-hmm. so I guess then in two thousand and eight so that decision, how long did it take and and how did you navigate that process because it's obviously huge and you knew that there was you know, probably a certain amount of risk involved, but I also appreciate the fact that you are transparent in that financially, it would, there was some upside. So how did you even get from, this is a thought, it could be, to I'm going?
1: Well, I mean, it, it was uh, interesting. It was, uh, obviously, I talked to uh, my husband a lot about it to see sort of what his thoughts were, you know, because obviously, that, that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. To see whether or not, if I were to go, if he would be okay with me going, because obviously the all the the uh, rear, you know, all the parental duties would fall on his shoulders, and so that was sort of the first step. The second step was sort of researching Afghanistan. I didn't really know a lot about Afghanistan then, other than what i had heard about the news, which frankly was all negative. And so just like researching that, and that was, you know, th- those were really the two two things that I, I looked looked at. Um, and, and seeing also obviously where the kids were at, if, if this may be a good time to kind of, would they be able to handle it? So those three things, taking those three things into consideration, um, we made the decision that, you know, why not now? And then I went to
0: Afghanistan. And knowing a bit about your story, what happened next, you probably couldn't have even imagined. Can you talk a little bit about getting there and, and What you experienced, and then why you decided to invest so much of your time, energy, career, life into what you do now.
1: Well, I mean, when I got there, the thing about it is, I don't think if you've never been to Afghanistan, one can never really fully be prepared for Afghanistan if you've never been to a country like that. So I was very anxious, I was very nervous, I was very scared. I was all those things combined, um, but also very excited because I'd never left the U.S. before. And so that also was very exciting for me to do. But I was also, frankly, open. I think because it was my first place, I was also very open to experiencing, learning and understanding. And I say that because, you know, this is now 10 years later and I travel a lot now. Um, And so I Understand and expect certain things when I travel now, whereas then I had really no expectations. So I was like a sponge, just soaking up everything—the culture, you know, the vibe, you know, everything. Um, so I thought that was really um, interesting for me to be in that situation at that point in time.
0: It is amazing that that was your first time outside of the U.S. and you didn't have anything to compare it to, really. So then. You're there, and you spent some time with this contracting job, and then you ended up taking on these these roles, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some of the stories and some of the, the things that you ended up doing and still do today. how did, did you notice there was a shift at some point uh, when you were there for your contracting job, and then you, you knew this is this is something much bigger and it's going to be a part of you for for a lot longer?
1: Well, you know, honestly, I never could have imagined that I would still be working in Afghanistan 10 years later, to be honest. It really was supposed to be, you know, go to Afghanistan, make the money, come back after a year. That really was the plan that was initially put into place. So I had no idea that it would be what it is right now. I would say being a contractor in Afghanistan for this justice program, it was uh, interesting but also uh, I saw a lot of corruption that was happening there that I did not like. And when I mean corruption, I mean corruption by the Afghan government, but frankly corruption by our government as well. And so I was very uh, disappointed with that um, because I didn't realize how much money we invest in a country in Afghanistan and also how much of that money does not go where it's intended to go. So based on that experience, it sort of turned me off of wanting to continue to be a contractor in Afghanistan. And so I thought, frankly, that I was gonna leave after a year, but part of my job was um, I would go to the prisons there to kind of try to understand the prison systems so I could understand how the legal systems were working in Afghanistan. And I remember when I went to um, a prison visit, I met these two guys, one from the U.K. and one from South Africa, both white guys and English speakers. And I remember doing this prison tour and them sort of trying to get my attention. And it never dawned on me until that moment that there were also foreigners that were locked up in Afghanistan. And I remember these guys, you know, I was I was on a prison tour. There were about 15 people, 14 men and me. And, um, these guys were like, Hey, you know, come here, you know, we, 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 and they were trying to both explain their stories to me in like the short period of time that they could about how they had been locked up for years. And they had written on a piece of paper, their stories, and they were trying to shove these pieces of paper to me. And I remember them saying me being like, no, I can't take it. I can't take these documents. you know, this really doesn't have anything to do with me, but I was super curious. And so I remember, uh, Bevan, the South African, he sort of looked at me and, you know, he was very haggard, very thin, long bearded and said with tears in his eyes was really like, you know, please help us. No one is helping us. And so I couldn't walk away from that. And so I, I did take the papers and I remember that night just reading their stories and it's like, they were just waiting for somebody like me to come by to hear their, for them to plead their cases, essentially, and so from that experience, um, I realized now that was really a turning point for me. And from that experience, I eventually uh, quit as a contractor after a year. I did my year contract, and then I just worked, started working independently, and started independently representing people in Afghanistan and I first only started representing foreigners when I started my practice like Bevan and Anthony. So it was really interesting
0: that is it is fascinating because it was you said you were super curious at first of just what would be on these papers and then after learning the story you couldn't turn away and then here we are a decade later and you you are considered one of the most effective, defense attorneys operating in Afghanistan, and you've done so much. Can you talk a little bit about your viewpoint on justness?
1: Justness is the legal reality that I fight for on behalf of my clients. It differs from justice in terms of, I feel like justice is this very abstract concept of people wanting to supposedly be made whole Um, once they are, someone violates their rights from a criminal standpoint, you know, people that are victims of crimes, justness is the legal realities I fight for on behalf of my clients to try to make them whole. Um, because I feel like it's very few people, frankly, that I see achieve justice when they're victims of crimes. So I work within the confines of the laws by fighting for justness. So that's, that's what I mean by that.
0: And so I imagine it took a a ton of educating yourself about their laws, but also the corruption that was going on there. And I've heard you talk about the jurgas and how you would literally sit down with groups of of people on both sides of a, a case. And there are these images of you sitting on the ground with these men and you're, you're talking it through like with your legal pad in hand. Can you talk through a little bit about how that situation is hard to even imagine here, but how you demand enough respect to even get people to sit down with you?
1: Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of litigation and law, it's, it's all about people really, you know, and it's a two way street. So in order to, um, if you want to be heard, you need to listen. And so that's what I was finding out that wasn't happening for a lot of people in Afghanistan and frankly around the world. People didn't feel like they were being listened to. And so I did, um, basically I was approached because there was a man who owed $2,500 to his neighbor. And his neighbor, because he borrowed the money, because his family was very ill, Um, he had eight kids, his family's homeless, he lost his job. Like I said, his wife was very sick. His son died from the elements. They were living in a refugee camp. So he needed the money basically to survive. And so the neighbor um, eventually wanted his money back. And so he came to the dad's house with a bunch of guys demanding that he receive his money back. Long story short, the village elders and the religious leaders decided that they should have a jirga. And a jirga is basically... It's a form of mediation. Um, It's where you get village elders and religious leaders that come, and they are sort of the people presiding over the dispute. And you have the parties that are part of the dispute come and, you know, share their grievances. So at the sturga, the uh, elders decided that the best way to settle the debt was if the father gave his six-year-old daughter to the neighbor's 21-year-old son to be married. And that's how the debt was supposed to be satisfied. And so I was contacted um, by several people that said they wanted to make this right. They couldn't believe that a six-year-old um, was being based, essentially sold off, and they wanted, you know, they had they wanted to donate money to get her back. And I said it's not that simple. What needs to be ha- happen is there needs to be a second jurga, like a jurga of appeals. And in this jurga of appeals. You need to have the village elders, the religious leaders, and the grieved parties, they all need to agree that they want to come back for a second jurga. And I said, and if I'm going to be involved in the second jurga, then they all also need to agree that I'm the one, the main judge presiding over the jurga. And so I talked to the village elders, I talked to the religious leaders, not, not so much talking, I listened to the village elders, I listened to the religious leaders, I listened to the father, I listened to the guy whom he owed the debt for, and I, also, and I proposed that we have a second jurga, um, and they agreed. And we had the second jurga, and they did let me preside over it. And in the second jurga, um, the debt was satisfied, the um, engagement was terminated. I mean, the girl did not have to marry the, the son, and I also added some extra legal things that are consistent with the law. There, basically, letting them know that you know if you you cannot legally sell any of your daughters because it's against the law, and if you do, you can go to prison. Also, they agree that all their females in their families um, have the right to education and would be educated, which is also. Um, according to the Afghan constitution and I got all their contact details so that if they violated any of these conditions and all of them or singular or plural or um, could be arrested for violating the conditions of the contract they all signed it they provided their details I registered that with the government the girl was returned home and now she's in
0: school Amazing. This is Nagma, right? Yes,
1: it's Nagma. Uh,
0: Do you still keep in touch with her?
1: I do actually. Her father. Yes. It's funny because I was just in Afghanistan a couple months ago, and she's mad at me because um, she she was having throat problems, and her father and I took her to the hospital, and basically she needed to get her tonsils out. Basically, I arranged for her to get her tonsils out. She was so mad at me, but yeah, I know.
0: (laughs) You're the guardian angel that that keeps giving. Well, there's there's a really basic underlying theme here that I keep hearing from you. And you said if you want to be heard, you need to listen. And you said the only way really you were able to get that second jurga of appeals was because you went and listened to the religious leaders and the the kind of voices of authority per se there. And I've I've seen in and Vanity Fair has has said, you know, Kim must appear to be someone from outer space. She acknowledges this, but declares that she gets respect. She's been proven to be very effective and a tenacious fighter. And it seems to me that your superpower is really listening, and you get that respect from listening. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I do think that's accurate. I don't know if I have a superpower, but I think...
0: (laughs) I think you have many. (laughs) I think a lot of people would agree.
1: (laughs) I think listening is is important. You know, it's, it's so important. You know, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as amount of the time as you are supposed to talk. That's a quote I got from, I have to say, attorney Michael Avenatti, who I think is doing a great job on TV.
0: I'd love to talk about that, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, you, you listening is the greatest asset that we have, a greatest asset a person can employ and it's so important. I mean, that to me is more important in a conversation than, than talking In a lot, a lot of times.
0: And you also said you were really curious just even from the get-go when you are visiting the jail. And the combination of those two two things I think can be extremely powerful. Real quick, and then I'd love to get back to just kind of the global situation with listening and or the, the lack of and, and even domestic here. Um, but before we do that... I really believe that where passion, purpose, and skill collide, bliss resides, and that there's a really powerful intersection with passion, purpose, and skill. When you went to Afghanistan, did you feel that in your career you were in that intersection prior and or after?
1: Well, I mean, I've always loved my job. I always loved being an attorney. And before I went to Afghanistan, I worked in the public defender's office in Wisconsin and, you know, uh, representing indigent, cli- poor clients that could not afford a lawyer. And I always loved that. I always loved dealing with, frankly, the underdogs. I always loved my clients, frankly. Um, a lot of them made horrible decisions, um, but a lot of them, it was predictable that they were going to make the decisions that they made, which is why we sort of came in contact. And I loved listening to them because when you're dealing with sort of an underserved population, and I think that's what helped me in Afghanistan, you realize how invisible they are in a lot of ways to the world. And so they want to be heard. They want to be seen. You know, they want their stories. They want people to understand who they are and why they're behaving in the way that they're behaving, and I always thought, I always loved that part of my job, of opening up. always I always felt that I always felt very privileged when people would open up to me because it puts people in a very vulnerable position, you know, and it's it's a gift if someone shows their vulnerability to you. I think that you shouldn't take lightly. I do think that. The passion, purpose, and skills that was sort of that evolved the the seeds of that was was planted in the public defender 's office before I went to Afghanistan, but I feel like in Afghanistan it really blossomed
0: that makes sense and it 's an intersection that I think a lot of people may never find or or create really um, having kind of witnessed just researching you and knowing you a little bit prior to and some of the brief work that we did together, it just seems like there's such a distinction here where those three are so present. Um, Such a great example. Back to just this topic of listening and what's going on right now in the United States, just the conversations around the law and attorneys and the Western diplomat actually has said that you are the kind of person, Kim, that makes people change their opinions about attorneys and lawyers. Do you feel like there's been a shift in trends in terms of the way things are going in the United States as it relates to the law over the last couple of years?
1: You know, I do. I I do feel like, at least with lawyers, you know, I always feel like law lawyers, were supposed to be an honorable bunch. Uh, This is supposed to be an honorable profession. And I feel like it's lost a lot of its luster, unfortunately, because of bad lawyers that are doing a horrible job. And that really pisses me off a lot um, because everyone deserves uh, to be represented well. I do feel like a lot of people feel like the law, especially even in the U.S., that the law is not accessible to them, even though it is. And I think a lot of people feel like that because they don't understand the law. And I really, as a lawyer, I always try to talk about the law in a language that everyone can understand. Um, I try to avoid legalese because it doesn't really, um, it's not effective to me when you're representing somebody because they need to understand what you're talking about. And my job, I think, as a lawyer is not just for me to represent my client, but I feel like my job is to empower my client so that they can represent themselves. Like, I really feel like that's what lawyers should do as well as representing their clients. And so I think within the last year with what's happening politically in the U.S., we have seen, I think, a lot of really cool things with the law and with lawyers that are using law to fight against things that are happening in the government that seem to be unconstitutional, um, unethical or even corrupt. And I think that's great because that's what the law is supposed to be. The law is supposed to be a check on the systems uh, of society, of our democratic society to make sure that uh, the rules and regulations that we have set up, i.e. the laws are being followed by everybody. And so I think that that's a good thing, you know, but I think there needs to be a, a heck of a lot more of it. There, there isn't nearly as much people fight as many people fighting for the law and against uh, different legal issues in the U.S. as there should be.
0: The education, what you just said about empowering your clients so they can represent themselves, it's such a twist on it in a good way, uh, a different viewpoint than I've really ever kind of thought about relationship with an attorney, and it's it's a really refreshing one. Uh, And as far as what you're doing right now, Kim— Is your main focus still Afghanistan or are you, I know you work in a lot of other countries, a lot of different things. What is your current primary focus?
1: My primary focus is just representing people well, wherever they may be in the world. And so in terms of where I'm at um, location wise, you know, I represent clients on every continent except for Antarctica. My main headquarters are in the U.S. and Afghanistan. I still do a lot of legal practice in the U.S. as well. But I also take a lot of cases in different countries. I'm sort of, I'm a disruptor um, with a lot of issues that are happening um, and just fight for people's rights as best as I can in whatever country that may be. I try to be a voice for the voiceless where I can from a legal perspective. Um, And and I'm going to continue doing that. You know, I, this, I'm enjoying doing it. I like doing it right now. And I can't see not doing it, at least not for the time being.
0: And with your job, there is a, an, an amount of risk that is well above average. And in your career, you've been temporarily de- detained and uh, accused of running a brothel. Uh, the list goes on. Accused of being a spy. You've had a grenade thrown at your office although it didn't go off how do you justify maybe justify isn't the right word but how do you keep going with that type of danger
1: I mean it's just part of the job (laughs) I don't really think honestly I'm just like it's just part of the job it's like you you know I go and say you can't get in the boxing ring and complain about getting hit that's just how it is you know and if I don't like it then I, I should just quit period and I'm not ready to quit. I'm not going to quit.
0: Do you feel like some of that has subsided, the f- kind of physical danger, or do you still feel that uh, to the extent that you have in the past?
1: I, to be honest, I think it's increased. I mean, that, I mean, it's expected, right? The more, the more you do well on cases, the more people want you to represent them, and the more attention you get from the good guys, but also the bad guys.
0: Wow. So changing gears for just a minute, I want to try and dig into your operating system a little bit, because... You are very unique and brave, but just your day and, and the way you operate. If someone were to ask you, what are some of the unique aspects of how you navigate your day? What would you say?
1: Well, I think um, there is no schedule ever. You know, there's a schedule, but it's like anything can happen in a day, um, which I think is interesting. And I can be contacted from anywhere, anyone from anywhere anywhere. And I, you know the the, the the things that I get are just crazy sometimes, but they're interesting. Um, I rely a lot on, you know, obviously technology is is really important because I need to be people need to be able to contact me from wherever they are in the world. You know, I generally keep my schedule in my head. It's just it's just been a habit of mine because, um, from a security standpoint, I'm really the only one that generally knows my schedule like for a full day? I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's a good question, but it's just, I've just never.
0: <laughs> well, it's hard when it's you probably, right? Because it's just the way you offer it. But speaking of the technology and for people reaching out, I imagine is, is it, it's probably become a lot easier to tell what's like super legit and what isn't, but do you get a lot of outreach that's so bizarre that you have a hard time telling if it's real or if it's something that you should pay attention to or not? Oh,
1: it it does happen. It does happen, to be honest. And I am able to try to streamline whether it's real or whether it's BS pretty quickly. You know, um, people, if you Google me, you know, I'm pretty accessible on purpose in terms of like, you can find my email, my phone number, my Facebook, and that's on purpose because I just have people that need help. And so i try to be very quick and respond as quick as I can to responding to people um, when they have questions or when they're in, in need. Cause frankly, a lot of times people are really in life or death situations um, and they do need someone to respond pretty quickly. And so I, but, and also I've, I, with this work I've been able to create a network of people around the world that can do a lot of things on the ground for me to see whether or not a call is valid or not. So I sort of enact those systems.
0: What's one lesson that you've had to learn multiple times?
1: I've had to learn to get your sleep. Getting your sleep is so important because you can burn out. So I make sure that I at least get my seven hours of sleep.
0: That's such a a good one. And with your travel, is that difficult because of your time time zone changes? And
1: it, it definitely can be. I mean, I think the travel, like the, I, I'm fine with. Like I'm used to the travel. It's just being accessible to people when they need me to be accessible is always a challenge because I'm on wherever I'm at. I know people or I have clients on every time zone. So and a lot of times there's emergency situations that happen and they want, you know, an immediate response. I've learned that to just be like, listen, this is my sleeping time. That's it. And The traveling, to be honest, I like when I'm on, when I travel because that's when I definitely get my sleep because I'm on a plane and usually my plane rides are over 12 hours and I don't have internet access so I can get my sleep. I can have uninterrupted work time, which is great. And I'm pretty good at flipping to the time zone that I'm going into when I'm on the plane. So I I don't have a problem with sleeping or, which is good.
0: Fascinating that that, that's your answer, and it's so good. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Everybody needs to hear it. So tell me about your Identity Project. Okay.
1: Well, basically, the Identity Project is about making women around the world visible. There are over 30 million women around the world, including over 2 million women in the U.S. that don't have basic IDs. Like basic state IDs. And the reason being in places like Afghanistan, in order for a woman to get an ID, she needs a man's permission to get that identification card. And the problem with this is is that it disallows, if you don't have identification card, you're not allowed to vote. You're not allowed to get healthcare. You're not allowed to go to school. Basic constitutional rights that you're entitled to are taken away from you simply because you don't have an identification ID card. So identity project is about giving women their identity back. And so identity card um, costs basically $20 for each woman for them to have Their basic constitutional rights. And also in the US, there's over 2 million Americans, natural born citizens, that don't have their identification cards. And a lot of it is because they don't have the financial reasons to get their identification cards. So, what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to work towards giving women their ID. I'm working with them in terms of getting the documents that they need to get their IDs, filling out the applications, paying their fees so that they can become visible to the world. And that's what the Identity Project is about. And if people want to know more, if they go to my website, motleycares.org, under my projects, I talk about the Identity Project.
0: Wonderful. This is eye-opening. I mean, wow, how shocking to hear that even... 2 million people in the U.S. alone, not to mention globally. And and so can people donate financially and or is there any way to donate time?
1: There's, uh, people can definitely donate financially if they go to motleycares.org and they, there's a PayPal site they can go to. I'm always open to working with people if they want to donate their time. And I'm happy to talk to people about what they can do and who they can reach out to to help a woman in their community to get their
0: identity. Wonderful. And have any other organizations partnered with you to help support or corporate brands or anything like that?
1: Nope. I mean, everything that I do in terms of um, about 30% I work is pro bono work that i fund myself and so i've inv- i consider myself a global investor in human rights so short answer no no one has partnered with me on this so I'm, but i'm always willing to do that this is a new project that i'm
0: launching okay so if someone's listening and they work for a big company that sounds like um or that they feel is aligned with this initiative they can reach out to you too then yes that's okay correct. wonderful Jeez, that's, that's amazing, Kim. And, and just the education around it. How many people are unaware that that situation is where it is? Yes, it's crazy. And a couple of rapid-fire questions, Kim. A couple are fun. A couple of are more serious. But uh, what are you reading right now?
1: I'm reading, actually, um, The War on Peace by Ronan Farrell. I just picked it up yesterday.
0: And are you typically, you read versus listen to audiobooks? Yes. Do you have an all-time favorite book? 1984. Oh. And what keeps you up at night?
1: Music. I like listening to music.
0: Oh, so you're intentionally keep... (laughs) Okay. Anything on your mind ever that keeps you up at night? So tough to get those seven hours sleep? No. Nope. Good. That's awesome. Pirates or ninjas? Who's tougher?
1: Ninjas. Definitely.
0: Any uh, argument behind it or just a full stop right there? Well,
1: because my Wu-Tang name is Wicked Ninja.
0: Oh. (laughs) Oh well, there we go. <laughs> that's, that's a good answer. That's rightfully so. What advice would you give to your younger self
1: to learn how to ride a motorcycle?
0: Really? Yes. Because when you travel,
1: um, you need to know how to operate every mode of transportation, because if, if, you know if stuff hits the fan, you want to be able to, in, in a lot of countries, they don't have a lot of cars, but they do have motorcycles. So from a security standpoint, it makes sense that you should also know how to ride a motorcycle. And I have learned how to ride a motorcycle now, but I wish I had learned years ago.
0: Did you learn at, in a kind of intense time, or did you find the time to go and get proper training? Oh no, I learned in Afghanistan. I did
1: it. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> it was really bootleg how I learned, but yeah, that's how I learned.
0: And just one other area that I think is is really interesting, and it it just paints such a colorful picture of your your life and, and personality. So you were Miss Wisconsin in 2004, right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, it was funny. I actually did that and I'm glad I did it. My best friend dared me to enter the Mrs. Wisconsin pageant. Uh, and I did it as a dare. I'd never done a beauty pageant and basically there's a swimsuit portion an interview portion an evening gown, you have to wear an evening gown. There's no talent portion of it, which is why I could do, I have no talent like that. And so I entered it and it was just something to do, frankly, to be funny. And as a stress reliever and I won, which was made it kind of funnier, but I'm also glad that I did um, because it was a really, really great experience. And I still am in contact with, um, some of the ladies from the pageant. So it was a really, really cool experience.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And one other question that just popped in, and it's, I'm really curious, where do you get your news?
1: You know, I get it um, from different places. I usually, I don't really try to watch the news. It's kind of annoying these days, to be honest. Um, so I'll read. I'll read, you know, the New York Times. I'll read Washington Post, Al Jazeera, London Times. I read BBC. I'll read local news in certain countries, um, like I'll read like news in Malaysia and Afghanistan, the local newspapers um, or whatever countries I'm going to. So that's generally where I, Washington Post, you know, all the signature places. I like to read the Economist, of course, because um, I think that's really, you know, they have like a lot of interesting articles. Rolling Stones, I like to read.
0: I think that's great to hear from you, given what you do and needing to be informed, but also being well-rounded with a lot of those international publications too. It's a reminder I think that we can we can get in our own echo chamber and you just can't, right? You need to kind of know but you have your credible sources. Yes, definitely. Is there anything that you feel listeners should know about Afghanistan or about Um, anything going on worldly that you feel like there's just not enough awareness about? I know that's a big question, but specifically given your view and lens.
1: Especially with America, you know, there's so many countries and people around the world that look up to America and Americans, which I love and I think it's great. And I, I think sometimes we forget about other countries and what's going on there and the needs that people have in countries, especially with women and children, where they cannot really help themselves. They really rely on a lot of aid that we give them, like, for instance, in places like Afghanistan. And so one thing I would love for people to, to know is that, from my experience, the vast majority of Afghans are very appreciative of America. They love the idea of America. They love Americans. They love the support. They very much look up to us, and they need that. And they, they need for us to understand and and to know that, you know, uh, especially with the women, it's not a situation that they want to be in. It's a situation that they were born in and that, you know, as a global society, we should really look out for each other because we all live on planet earth as a global dysfunctional family and a issue that happens in Afghanistan, like a girl that's being sold as a young child bride that's happening in Afghanistan, it's not just that problem isn't just confined to Afghanistan, but we have young brides also being sold in America. Also, these are all global issues. You know, I think I hope that we continue to help in place like Afghanistan. I hope I hope we continue we hope help even more in place like Yemen, which need the help so def- desperately, especially for refugees who are literally fleeing from their lives from their homes, not because they want to, but because they just want to live. And, you know, life is a basic human right that we're all entitled to. And so I think a lot of people think that they're just wanting to be refugees and they could just go back home Well, they can't. They have to choose between life or death and they're choosing to live. And if we can help them, we should help them. Whether it's financially, with our time, whatever, with passing information on, We should do that if we have the ability to do it.
0: Incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the important work that you're doing and continue to do. Uh, And as well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you. everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Joe Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your Why Not Now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash whynotnow. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now?